Hello, my name is Dave Lewis, and I am the host of Cinemillennials, a podcast where myself and another millennial watch a classic film that we haven't seen before, ranging from the early 1900s to the late 1960s, and discuss its significance and relevance in our world today. On today's episode, I talked with my twin brother Tom about 1968's 2001, A Space Odyssey, directed by the legendary Stanley Kubrick. Due to its technical achievements and visual effects, its scientific accuracy, sound design, and how it approaches philosophy and life's biggest questions, 2001 A Space Odyssey is often considered to be the greatest film of all time. After the release of Dr. Strangelove, Kubrick wanted to set out to make the, quote, the proverbial good science fiction film. Based on the short stories of one of the most influential science fiction writers of all time, Arthur C. Clarke, 2001 covers the length and breadth of time and space as our characters seek to discover the link between early and technologically advanced man. So sit back, relax, and open the pod bay doors to 2001, A Space Odyssey. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome to the show, Tom. How old are you? What was the first film you saw in theaters? And what is your favorite film now? I am 27. The first film I saw in theaters was Toy Story. And my favorite film now, it's it's not something I kind of have a concrete example of. It kind of changes. If I had to say off the top of my head, probably Blade Runner 2049. But ask me in... A week or two and it could be different your first movie being toy story that was my first movie <laughs> so can you recall how you first heard of or encountered 2001 a space odyssey probably not i know it's kind of like been a real influential ubiquitous kind of thing and i've seen it referenced and parried parodied in a lot of stuff i've seen you know like futurama you know that kind of thing but i i don't remember the first time i've heard of it it was probably so long ago were you aware of its impact its huge ideas that it had within the film not i mean i didn't know too much about the movie before i saw it Mm -hmm. what inspired you to pick the film uh i'm a big fan of sci-fi and we we could definitely tell that with blade runner 2049 (laughs) being your favorite one right now yeah um yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of sci-fi and a lot of kind of the older sci-fi books as well. Um, like 2001's based on mm-hmm. a book by Arthur C. Clarke. Right. And I haven't read that book, but it's uh, yeah, it's it's a favorite genre of mine, and it's an influential movie just knowing that based off of, you know, 
parodies that have been done, like I said before, in Futurama or Spaceballs or you know whatever else. So what was your first foray into science fiction? Probably it was Star Wars. Yeah, that's what I think with myself as well. I mean, like we grew up in the same house, but I think that's the first thing I really remember seeing or interacting with sci-fi. And I think that's a lot of people's influence uh, into science fiction and definitely things that are influenced by star wars so did you see the influence 2001 had on star wars oh yeah for sure i mean there was a couple of shots that were just lifted straight from 2001 and put into star wars one of the i mean one of the biggest things in star wars that people remember is the beginning shot of most of the movies where you have the ship flying in right in front of the camera and that shot is in 2001 and the ship's design is also pretty close to what's in 2001 but i mean it was interesting to see how a- accurate they kind of wanted to try to make the movie to what it would really be like and then some limitations on that realism when you look at the detailing of the ships as well as like with the models and everything like that with the sets remember at the beginning of the movie where haywood is going up to space when he goes from the pan am ship to the international space station you see the little like video or like the you know how in star wars at the end of empire strikes back where it's luke and the whole gang and they're in that little like window you saw a lot of that in that scene and i'm like is this where like lucas got blue screen from and like all his other ideas like 2001 i said in the intro is massively influential and massively technologically advanced for its time the film came out in 1968 and at this time people always say that star wars was this big foray into science fiction and it was like such a breaking point uh breaking off point for the rest of sci-fi we see today but really in 2001 a space odyssey is the one that's really the rocket that you know burst the bubble uh on sci-fi yeah, I think 2001 was definitely a pioneer of it, and Star Wars kind of made it mainstream. Oh, yeah, for sure. There's always things like that. I mean, like, look at, again, look at Blade Runner. Like you said, Blade Runner was a big foray to the hard noir sci-fi kind of thing. With Star Wars was that it brought the fantasy element to science fiction as well as changing it from the stark white of everything that you see in 2001 a space odyssey yeah this was a lot more hard science fiction it was a lot more try to stay more realistic and you know a lot of with a lot of science fiction people kind of look at like oh you know look at what they predicted in these books and these movies and it's it's here today but i think it's more interesting to look at what they almost got right Mm -hmm but not quite because right. you know we're all shaped by the time we grow up and the time that we live in and that may close us off to certain ideas like the the biggest example I saw is when they were in the meeting with Haywood they had an, somebody left the room and they had an automatic door mm-hmm. but the door wasn't truly automatic you had to push a button to open it and walk through and then push a button to close it as like a doorknob right. where, you know, today it would just open and close all on its own. You wouldn't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. And I uh, also think it's interesting to look at what they got wrong, like what you might expect things to be by a certain time that just 
aren't like we're not even today still at that level of space travel you know anywhere near it or even all of the brands that were featured in mm-hmm. it um yeah some of them are gone <laughs> yeah well yeah that's that's what i mean like we expect things that we have in our world that we're so familiar with and have been around forever to last forever but they don't mm-hmm. uh, except advertising <laughs> yeah there's a lot of advertising in it but now tom you studied like you this is this is a great film. I was I wasn't surprised at all that you picked this film because growing up you were big into science, you were big into NASA and space travel, and much more than I was. I was more the history and uh, you know movie person. What do you think from what you know? What did they get right um, about this stuff? There's a lot of different things that anybody can tell us that they got right, like the video calling that they had, which is by IBM, which isn't uh, the best thing right now. Best company for that stuff right now. I don't, do they even exist? I don't even know. Yeah, but, they do. Oh, they do? Okay. Um, so what did you think, what, what you saw? Because I, I even asked you a question in the middle of the movie, like during a vi- very vital point where someone gets ejected into space. And I was like, wait, shouldn't they be tethered? Because, you know, we've seen when we were younger, uh, astronauts when they're trying to fix something or repair something on the ship that they're tethered usually to something else uh, as a part of the ship and you're like no that's not necessarily true so what were the things that you thought Kubrick and the the team got right for the film yeah so one thing that I really loved about the movie was when they were playing with your sense of perspective mm-hmm um, on oh, the yeah. spaceship scenes, uh, I mean, I think the earliest scene where they do this is on the Pan Am flight, where the flight attendant goes and picks up some food for somebody, and then walks up the curve of the wall because there's no gravity mm-hmm. at this point, and she just walks up the wall, and it it doesn't matter because you know in space when you're in free fall, this wouldn't really apply um, to a moving ship as much right but when you're in free fall there is no up or down uh because there's no gravity and we naturally orient ourselves according to gravity but in space when you don't have a gravitational pull it can get very strange and confusing and you need to really be on top of it because what is up one moment could be down the other moment, and it doesn't feel any different. Uh, the other example I can think of is on the ship that's on its way to Jupiter, where the one character, I don't remember if it was Dave or Frank, climbs out of a hatch and then floats over to, either floats or he climbs a ladder, I can't remember, over to a wall and then walks straight down the wall. And it wouldn't work exactly like that, but I really liked that they wanted to give you a sense of this kind of loss of perspective and direction that would really occur there. Right. I I was, it was funny. I was like, I have a feeling Tom's going to talk about that uh, whole thing of the perspective and everything and gravity, because I was just like when, and they actually developed the whole thing, Tom, where he, it was a massive set. Like they yeah. built it in a giant warehouse and it the whole thing rotated. So when oh, yeah. he's yeah, when he's running through the track and stuff, it's rotating. Mm-hmm. So that whole like I mean, 
the the massive amount of teamwork and intelligence that went into this film and to the little inter- intricate details right down to the very things like what uh things could look like what uh control panels would look like how people would operate them and how you know these people just i mean the actors like you could tell they looked so natural pressing the right buttons and the correct um sequence and i thought that was just amazing like but it was funny that you're saying that because like when they when things were rotating and their perspectives were changing i was like oh i don't feel so great <laughs> like i was feeling a little car sick or like i don't know motion sick at some point but i thought it was really cool to see a lot of the stuff that like we have today like they had these like ipad massive ipad type of things they had a lot of really cool stuff and you, you can even see influences like with how like with the iPhone and Apple products and different things like that. And I think that it's it's really cool to see from 1968 a lot of the stuff that they get right within the scientific stuff. But the stuff that we have today, like it's massively uh, it's just really, really cool. Yeah, I mean, that kind of brings me back to what I was saying before about you know we can imagine what the future will be like but because of the context that we have around us now we're going to get some things wrong right like you mentioned the tablets that they were watching well they never really had anything like that back then right. and the closest thing that was there was a tv so they only used it as a tv mm-hmm. where, oh yeah true yeah where instead of you know integrating it more into everything else like you know a computer like why can't a computer screen show the kind of images that a tv can Mm -hmm. where they used a lot of the you know line projection monitors right um, the screens and everything now and then the the other example that i thought was pretty fun was um the video call that they did they figured we'd be able to call on videos but it was still a payphone. (laughs) <laughs> like they never made the next jump to well what if you just had a phone in your pocket right yeah that was i mean that that whole situation like i i thought that was really interesting to see like oh you have to have a whole pay card and it was run by ibm and it was like i was like just very funny uh what did you think of the film overall did you like it yeah i thought it was pretty good it was a little strange especially at the beginning mm-hmm. and by strange i mean disjointed Mm-hmm. it's uh hard to it's it could be hard to see the connections of you know the scene at the beginning with mm-hmm. the apes and it seems like is this really necessary is this really connected mm-hmm. i think it provides a lot of context that helps with the rest of the story mm-hmm. and with the some of the themes that are in it but I enjoyed it overall. It really kicks into gear once you get into the sequence with Hal and Dave and the trip to Jupiter. But I think before then, it's a very different structure than I'm used to, at least. I'm used to more of a linear narrative structure Mm -hmm. rather than sort of an anthology structure where it's here's a story, here's another story. They're semi-related. Right, and I felt that too, because when you first start out in the film, like Tom's saying, the beginning of it is the dawn of man. So you're seeing these apes, and they're uh, just going around picking for berries or picking for anything in this vast wasteland. 
And then what you see is, so you go from that and you go from them are developing hunting tools and then weapons over time due to the mysterious appearance overnight of this black monolith. What are your thoughts about this monolith? We see it originally with the apes and how they kind of touch it and then go away and touch it and go away. And you kind of see the same thing with the astronauts and doctors that with Dr. Haywood, how they kind of do the same ritual, you know, where they're like kind of unsure about it. They touch it like something's hot, but it's okay. And then we later see it with Dave. What do you think about this monolith? Yeah, so the monolith kind of brings up a lot of ideas. Um, One of them is, you know, are we really alone in the universe? Are we the only intelligent creatures that are out there? Uh, The existence of the monolith, in my opinion, implies that we're not, and we're not even the most advanced. I think the monolith is a piece of technology sent to Earth, whether on purpose or by accident, um, that spurs the advancement of intelligence in creatures. But considering we don't know who made it, uh, if it was even made, or the real true purpose of it, uh, we'll never know that answer. But Mm -hmm. I think the monolith brings up an important thing to think about that I think a lot of people don't think about. is the fact that the monolith, although it was present at the dawn of humanity, is not a known and understood thing by the time the second monolith is discovered on the moon. Mm-hmm. And what that says to me is that nobody knew about the first monolith. Right. Like so, it says that, like they say in the movie, that it was buried under the lunar landscape for four million years yeah so what that kind of got me thinking about was you know do we really know who we are do Mm. we really know what our story is are we the people we think we are and not just on you know a species wide level but are we really the people that we think we are individually right and, you know, that's something that I kind of thought about uh, for a while after the, the movie ended. And I think it's something that, you know, is worth a shot for more people to think about because, you know, we kind of go through our lives all believing a version of ourselves in our heads. But is that version of ourselves really accurate? Right. It's like there's a lot of a lot of great philosophical questions this film brings up there's and that's a a great point that i haven't heard from anybody before uh concerning this movie and it's just like do we really know who we are in this universe and galaxy and who are we really i mean even on earth well like like do we we, do we get to where we are on our own mm -hmm. or was something else pushing us or guiding us or forcing us into a direction Right. And it's just like it's it's really interesting because, you know, a lot of people believe in extraterrestrials. A lot of people don't. A lot of people think intelligence design. A lot of people think intelligent design. A lot of people think about evolution. And a lot of that stuff is exactly what hard sci fi is. And when people see like Star Wars and 
different Marvel movies and things like like Guardians of the Galaxy and stuff like that. A lot of that stuff gets lost in the shuffle. And I think 2001 Space Odyssey is great for someone that enjoys sci-fi, but also people that really want to think about films and want to understand how film as an art can under can let us inspect within ourselves to answer the big questions in life. And what happens is with that monolith, as it goes on, it it does connect to 2001, that year in the film. Obviously not the year that we all experienced, but it's really interesting to see how, and like, like Tom, like you said, how it's kind of disjointed in a way. And I, I think that that could turn away people but you're saying and i also agree with you i I like the film up until a certain point do you think that people should power through that if they feel that they're either bored or they're not sure of where the film is going yeah i think even though disjointed and not what i'm used to in movies i think it does provide context that's essential for the overall idea of that the monolith is what spurs the next step in evolution for the creatures that come in contact with it although i think it is interesting and it adds to the mystery of the monolith where we see it three times in the movie and the first time is with the apes and that spurs them to figure out how to use tools and then the second time is when they find it on the moon but that doesn't really spur any kind of progression or growth that that monolith doesn't seem to have the power that the first one had and the third one as we see transforms dave into some kind of new creature that Mm -hmm. we're not aware of or can describe because it's the next step in evolution now when you're saying all this I was thinking, in some way, do you think the monolith's power of evolution is getting weaker or stronger? What I kind of took it as is they're not the same monolith. Oh, okay. What I kind of understood is there was the first monolith which Mm -hmm. crashed into Earth, and the second monolith crashed into the moon. Mm -hmm. And the second one may not have meant to spur any kind of evolution but just act as a pointer to the third one Mm -hmm. in the in the orbit of jupiter okay Um, so you so you're saying that the second one led to jupiter yeah yeah they uh, in the movie they said that they traced a signal from the moon monolith to the right one around jupiter the idea of the monolith is interesting because there's so many questions around it and they never get answered, which can be frustrating in one way, but it adds to the overall mystery and it's probably better off that it's not answered. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, yeah, like, I completely who, agree. Who made these things? Did they send them to Earth on purpose to spur evolution? Was it an accident? And we'll, we'll never know. It's worth saying, like, if there is some kind of living being out there capable of creating this technology, it might present itself to apes and humans as a black monolith, and we can't figure out how to use it, but to a different form of being, it may be entirely different. 
I like how what you were talking about, how it's ambiguous as to who created it. And like, we're not as as the audience, we don't know. We're not given that answer. Now, in films today, do you see that being an issue where there's a lot of films that just give every single answer that you ever want? Based on the movies that I've seen, and I don't watch as many movies that you do, but I think there has been less ambiguity. I think people kind of want to see things get resolved and they want to know, even though there's been a lot of examples where you find out the answer and you don't like it because Mm -hmm. it's, you know, you can think of a more satisfying answer in your head and it's better ambiguous. I mean, coming back to Star Wars, Mm -hmm. when it was revealed that the Force is coming from midichlorians and people's blood, people just flipped out and hated Mm -hmm. it. So sometimes we're better off not knowing and we can kind of create things in our own heads that would never be able to be translated to film that we are more satisfied with than whatever somebody else could come up with. And I think that is kind of one of the unique things about filmmaking is that it is a collaborative form of art Mm -hmm. and it doesn't stop after the production of the movie, especially with mysteries like that, where even though you don't get any official input when there's ambiguities and mysteries, the audience can participate in the film, even if it's in a small way. Right. Like, I think that's what one of like you, you hit the nail on the head there. I think that's one of the most beautiful things about film is if it's left to a certain degree of ambiguity or if it's left to a certain degree of, oh, let me uh, have my own opinion. Let me have my own kind of thing without the director bashing my head in over what he meant or she meant. I think that's really amazing because I feel like to a certain degree, and I don't know, you can tell me if you don't agree. I think that adds to the film's longevity as a talking point within the zeitgeist as well as its legacy. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. If you spur discussion and there's no real answer to a question, then people can talk about it forever. Biggest example more recently would be the end of Inception where Dom spins the top and, you know, does it fall down, does it not fall down? And the ambiguity kind of does give it staying power. Throughout the film, there's only a couple parts that have music in it right mm-hmm. so when you felt the parts without the music were there certain specific things that stood out to you yeah so the the lack of music was actually not something that i noticed on my own uh until you've just mentioned it now mm-hmm. and it i think it does add to kind of a sense of realism and tension especially especially since you know i've come to expect from movies there to be music in most scenes if not all scenes even if it's soft background music something like Mm -hmm. that and it's uh i think it kind of speaks to the strength of you know the writing direction and of course the performances of the actors they were really able to carry the ideas and the the emotions in the movie without using music as kind of a crutch, which a lot of films do. It did add a lot to the tension, especially in the scenes in space that had new music. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I feel like that must have been a deliberate choice because the only real sounds we heard in space were breathing. Yeah. And, you know, as everybody knows, uh, there's no sound in space. So I feel like that had to have been deliberate. The music choice was interesting. It was classical music. Of course, there's the famous opening scene with the drums and I think it's trumpets. Then there's Waltz, when I believe that's when Haywood is on the Pan Am spaceship. I thought those were interesting choices, but I feel like it didn't really need that much music. I didn't miss it. There's only two, to my knowledge, two directors that I can think of that use this type of silence or breath or something in the background while it's very quiet. And that is. Martin Scorsese in the film Silence. If you haven't seen that film, you got to watch that. One of his most underrated films. And then Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk, where they use the ticking watch. The only two people that I know that use that today, and they're auteurs in their own right. And I think they may have taken that idea from this film because the breathing is so intense. When Dave is in that pod, when he's trying to rescue the other guy, um, it's just so tense, and you're like, is he going to rescue him? Is he going to rescue him? And it's just so, like, I was so on edge. And a lot of people, unfortunately, like, see this film as long, arduous, and boring. And I feel like that might be part of it, because they're so used to listening to music constantly within film, where it's super action-packed kind of music, or it's the, the film is trying to manipulate the audience. So I feel like in a certain degree, he didn't want to manipulate the audience only in certain moments when those classical music pieces were in the film. Like when you hear the first one, uh, which will be at the beginning of this podcast, they're showing the dawn of man and it feels like it's dawn, right? Because the actual song is called Sunrise. But yeah, it's bombastic. It's yeah, triumphant, that kind of. Exactly. Emotion. And I feel like those parts with the music are, are perfect for each other. And then the other type of music that's in there is really erythral. Um, it's really spooky and unknown. And that's when the monolith is on screen. That's amazing because that's exactly what I thought about this monolith. Seeing it for the first and second and third time is just like, we don't know what it is. How are we ever going to know what this is? And how does it... How is it able to inspire all of these technological evolutions and evolution in general in humanity? And even further, we don't even know what happens to Dave at the end. So I think that is like really fascinating the way that he used this music and the way he didn't use music in this film. Do you think Hal's impact would be different if he had an interface like a Cortana or like a physical quote, a quote unquote physical body or face? to the actual voice do you think the disembodied voice is actually you know does that make the menace and does that make the dead kind of voice and the dead kind of body that he has quote-unquote body uh seem more menacing and more realistic yeah so i think it definitely would have given it a massive change um part of what hal was described as was like a computer that could at the very least mimic emotion and they even directly address it in the movie when the interviewer asks one of the astronauts you know are Hal's emotions real and he mm -hmm. says you know they seem real enough to me but you know 
I don't know if we'll ever really know. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think how not having a human face or a body or something to look at really does add to the tension of the mm-hmm. story. Um, because Hal was a newer kind of computer, one that can kind of mimic emotions and human speech and part of the tension and the unease that Hal creates is because we're not really sure if Hal really is as smart as a human or not. Mm -hmm. Because if Hal is just a computer, then it's just a machine. You know, it doesn't really feel it's just saying the things it does because it was programmed that way. But if Hal really does feel, I think that opens up a lot of analysis into why Hal did what it did. Mm -hmm. Where you can tell from the very beginning, um, when Hal was first introduced, it was hammered over and over again in the movie that no HAL 9000 computer had ever made a mistake, mistake. ever. And it's a very human reaction, I think, to when it does make a mistake. It tries to rationalize it where, you know, no, I didn't make a mistake. Every time a HAL 9000 made a mistake, it ended up being because of a human. Mm-hmm. And it's trying to rationalize its own mistakes and starts killing the astronauts in order to cover up the fact that it made a mistake. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, killing is an extreme reaction, but covering up what you have done wrong, and especially if you are a perfectionist and expect it to be perfect and never, never let anyone down, it can be really devastating and Mm -hmm. disruptive to make a a mistake and even if it's a minor one like Hal did where Hal thought a component was going to break a couple of days early but it ended up being fine Mm -hmm. I think the flat emotional performance of Hal also adds to the tension and the fear oh yeah definitely I think you know, this is a machine, but is it smart enough to be the same as us? And I think that kind of mixes in with a lot of the other themes of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, what were where, those themes? Yeah, so I think one of the big ones is um, the idea of artif- artificial intelligence in general and the idea of. Uh, you know, evolution and creation, where we see the apes at the beginning of the film and the monolith comes and makes them something more than they were. It gives them more intelligence. And I think the theme with Hal was, can we, having been, you know, created, can we become creators ourselves? and what can we make and what are the consequences of what we make 
um, a lot of the times, and you see this with a lot of technology today, for example, facial recognition technology, it gets made without realizing what the consequences could be. Right. Because we kind of rush ahead into it and later find out that there are massive, you know, ethical and moral implications to what we've done, but we don't know until after the fact. I also think it's interesting that the first thing that the apes do when they receive this intelligence from the monolith is violence. Mm-hmm. They, you know, discover the bones and they start beating them and, you know, it shows how they use it. And the first thing that Hal does when you can kind of say Hal became self-aware or right. more than just a machine is an act of violence. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also interesting to think about, like you said, this movie came out in 1968. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, computers were still kind of in their infancy then. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people may have been concerned over whether or not computers were going to be beneficial or if there were some unintended implications that came a lot of it and there are there's a ton of examples i could talk about but there is a lot going on in the movie with regards to artificial intelligence and we're still talking about it today i mean ai has become a big trend in tech circles and what we're not anywhere close to something like how where it mimics the human brain. Well, but. let me just interrupt you there. Wasn't there, there was a thing that I've heard about where it was two computers, right? And they had somewhat AI intelligence type of thing. And they started communicating with each other, right? Like that's, that, that's what rem- and they had like the the scientists that oversaw these two computers unplugged them because they weren't sure because they developed their own language and weren't sure what they were saying. So it's like it's crazy to see that some of this stuff is like I mean 2001 is like coming to fruition a little bit, you know. Yeah, I mean I I definitely think we'll get closer and closer as time goes on. A lot of what AI is today that people hear about is really you know an algorithm that looks at a lot of data mm-hmm. and you know it's it's got a part of the algorithm changes itself mm-hmm. when it has a result it's not intending so it'll crunch through a ton of data and eventually it'll have enough examples of what not to do or what to do that it'll kind of be able to make decisions but it's not really something i would consider like an intelligence Mm -hmm. but i'm sure we'll get closer and closer eventually and the implications of that will become clear to us well recently weren't um weren't some companies that were developing ai like i know you just said that it's not really ai to a certain degree of how we think about it but Weren't they now refusing to sell them to militaries now? Yeah, so that's mainly facial recognition technologies. Okay, that's what it is, yeah. Yeah, which are run by, you know, quote-unquote AIs. But 
those can be very dangerous and it still ties into 2001 a bit because how learns of the astronauts plan to disconnect it through lip reading right um which again by itself a computer that you can hook up a camera to that can read lips would be unbelievably impactful mm -hmm. uh in ways that you know we can't imagine in ways we might not be able to imagine now with all these things being so close to us what you just said and how it relates to us now why do you think millennials and younger generations should watch 2001 a space odyssey so i think people should watch the movie but i don't think it's a movie for everyone mm -hmm. um it is long even though it didn't really feel like as long as it was not at all to me it felt shorter um i think it's good for anyone interested in science fiction and you know kind of wants to try out a slower movie uh there's i mean today there's a lot of fast-paced kind of movies out you know the marvel movies the newer star wars even the first star wars um it's a lot faster paced but i think people who like suspense films might like it oh yeah and people who are into more kind of, I guess I want to say, like artistic kind of movies, especially with that sequence when Dave finally gets to Jupiter. Oh, my God. Um, that was... <laughs> yeah. I had, like, a breakdown at that point. I was like, what is happening? I am so confused and conflicted and scared, and, like, what is happening? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wasn't super crazy about that part. I think it probably went on too long, where it was yeah. just landscapes and ocean shots with color filters yeah but i was what? like i was sorry i i was just like so freaked out by the thought of like uh extraterrestrial life and like different <laughs> things like that because that stuff scares me like to a certain degree because then it just shatters the whole history and traditions and uh different things that i revere in my life and i was just like whoa so if you're into AI, you might like this too. I mean, not AI. I'm sorry. Uh, extraterrestrial life. <laughs> well, what I what I kind of took from that scene with all like the colors and everything, where you know you might say it's, oh well, this is just what Jupiter is supposed to look like. But what I kind of saw, especially when I kind of cut back to Dave's face looking right. confused oh, as hard, it was it was more like a human trying to comprehend something. Right. That that humans just do not have the requisite, Men you know, brain power, mental you know, capacity, organ. Not, I mean, not even just mental capacity. Be the right kind of eyes to see certain wavelengths. We like humans just don't have the equipment to comprehend. Mm -hmm. And the um, kind of that kind of plays into the passage of time, where. Dave wakes up in the pod in a room and he sees, keeps seeing progressively older versions of himself right. where it seems like maybe the next level of evolution is implied to perceive time in a different way than humans might, where we see it as a linear construction. They might not, it might be more mixed together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I like again i was freaked out about that whole thing i was like okay well this is the point in the movie that i was like kind of shut off from and then when he gets when he gets into um that room then i started to pay attention more and to understand or not to understand but to 
try to think deeply about what Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke, who wrote part of the film, or who helped Kubrick write the film, uh, was trying to say. And I kind of saw it differently. So Mm -hmm. I think, and, and this is what one of the great things about film is, a lot of people see different parts of movies. They see, oh, this is my perspective. This is my idea about it. I kind of think Dave died at some point. Mm-hmm. I think Dave died either when he tried to go through, um, when he tried to blast through the emergency doors and the rest of the film is his um, kind of, it. the rest of the film is his journey to the afterlife. Mm-hmm. And through him seeing the rest of his life in those phases, where he goes from young man to old to the creature or whatever he becomes, this giant fetus. Space baby. Space baby, yeah. It's a space baby. (laughs) I think that this could be trying to say uh, that there is an afterlife or it's something that we don't know. It's This is the great beyond, and maybe we're becoming, or we go through this journey of life and we become something different from what we perceive of life. Yeah, I think the becoming something different from what we see ourselves as now is a big thing. What I mean, what I kind of took it to mean is, you know, Dave becomes the next step of evolution above humans, the next level of intelligence. And maybe what it means is that in order for us to get to that next step, we need to go into space. And, you know, something that I believe is, you know, for humanity to survive long term on the order of, you know, thousands and millions of years, we need to go mm-hmm. into space. We need to leave the Earth and go and expand and find what's out there. Now, will that ever happen? I don't know. I hope it does. But to get to the next step may be incomprehensible to Mm -hmm. us and there may be something out there that can comprehend it thank you for being on the show i really appreciate it all right thank you i hope you guys enjoyed this discussion i had with tom about stanley kubrick's sci-fi masterpiece 2001 a space odyssey i really enjoyed our discussion and want to say thank you to him for being such a really great and supportive brother If you enjoyed this episode of Cinemillennials and want to watch the film we discussed, please check out my website, dlumoviereview.com, for more episodes of the podcast, film reviews, analyses, and where to purchase the film we discussed today. Please don't forget to subscribe and give us a five-star rating. Thank you.